Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. If you would like a chance to win a $30 e-gift card of your choice, answer the question at the end of this episode. The e-gift card is with compliments from our friends at Jangler. Hello everybody, I'm Brendan Rogers, the host of the Culture of Things podcast. This is episode 41 and today I'm talking with RJ Singh. RJ is a director of Cora Group which provides businesses with integrated freight and logistics management services. He's the founder of Ultra Habits, an ultra-endurance athlete, self-mastery mentor and devoted family man. His mission is to lead by example and share the ultra habits needed to achieve peak performance in all areas of life. With a rare magnetic personality that naturally draws you in, he can't help but inspire his audience. Maybe it's deciding to run a marathon, start walking at 4am to improve productivity, or adopt a no-excuses attitude. RJ is someone that leaves a lasting impression on everyone he meets. But it was a long and winding road to get there. Born to immigrant parents in Australia and raised in the US, RJ grew up in a close-knit family but experienced racism and violence at school, which led to him falling in with the wrong crowd. A string of bad decisions including crime, truancy and youth detention ended in dependency on alcohol and a one-way ticket to Sydney. Desperately wanting to change the course of his life but ill-equipped to steer the ship, he was fortunate to land a job and connect with some male mentors that started him on the journey to self-mastery. With support, he got sober and free from the chains of addiction, fully committed to cultivating the life he wanted. Recognizing that to accomplish his life goals, he needed to rebuild and master not just his mind, but his body and spirit too. Learning through experience and employing self-discipline, self-awareness and finding purpose in tough challenges, he mastered his fears and smashed his limiting beliefs. Every day he's getting closer to the very best version of himself. Driven by empowering men to achieve maximal success, he developed his pioneering framework, Ultra Habits. This same methodology has enabled him to earn an MBA from AGSM, focus on stoic fitness and endurance running, form healthy relationships, have a family and achieve mental peace. The focus of our conversation today is the art of self-mastery and achieving the best version of yourself. RJ, welcome to the Culture Things podcast. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Wow, what an introduction. There was a, a fair bit in that intro, oh, wasn't there? It was amazing. I'm, I'm blushing. If, uh, I don't know if the audience can see it, but uh, I was like, is he talking about me? <laughs> but yeah, it was a good introduction. Mate, you're a man who packs a punch, right? I Actually, I have to tell you this now. I was talking with a mutual friend of ours, a guy by the name of Alex Carver. You may know yes, him. yeah. And Alex and I came to the conclusion, you're actually the Central Coast version of David Goggins. Oh, no. Some of the guys at the gym tell me I'm the poor man's David Goggins. But uh, I try to, to kind of find my own space, but I can't seem to get away from David Goggins. But ultimately, look, I think he's a really, if you can remind people of David Goggins, I mean, there's a lot worse you can be doing in life, right? Absolutely, mate. So, um, Absolutely. I like David. I respect him. And and, and I think the, the greatest thing I respect about David is he shows a sermon. He doesn't just talk it. And he shows you the sermon via his actions. And for me, that's what's inspirational about him. Absolutely, mate. Fair, great point. And that's going to lead us into the conversation today, absolutely, around self-mastery and those ultra habits. First of all, how about you tell us a bit about that 
I'd love you to go into the background in the States and, you know, difficult sort of upbringing and those sorts of things. Tell us a bit about that and how that journey and really how you came out of that journey. I was a kid that, like many, many kids out there, didn't have a strong sense of self. You know, we talked about your daughter earlier and how she just had this innate ability to know her true north and, you know, her behaviors and actions guide her towards that true north, irrespective of what the external environment is presenting her. I didn't have that. I got swept up in everything and everyone around me and tried to be all things to all people and didn't really know who I was. And because I wasn't grounded, as they say, when you stand for nothing, you fall for everything. And that coupled by the fact that I have an addictive streak, whether that's nature or nurture, a combination of both, which I believe to be true, that created the perfect storm for a disaster. So I got involved with gangs, the wrong people, ultimately drugs and alcohol. And what happened was I started to create a identity. I started to find myself in what I perceived to be respect from others in a life of crime. And that was intoxicating for me to start to finally find a sense of power when I felt effectively powerless was something that I couldn't walk away from. And that took me into really bad places. And ultimately, I think where I really designed my character, my parents said, had bought a pool table when I was 10 years old. And I was a very good pool player by the time I was 16 or 17. And I started to go to pool halls and I started living in pool halls effectively. And I loved pool halls because it had the environment, gambling, fast money, alcohol, everything that was a vice was available, you know, down there in the San Francisco Bay area and the places that I was hanging out. And I started to hang around, and this is a theme even in business, but I started to hang around really established men that were doing the wrong things. And I had always attracted to men that could teach me something. And, you know, I think that might be because I didn't have a real strong relationship with my dad, even though he was there, he worked and there wasn't a connection there, but I really let the the negative environments mold me into what I believed was a better hustler. And uh, I liked fast money. I liked to cut corners. And I was addicted to doing the wrong thing amongst many other things. So, you know, at the age of 25, I really looking around me was just carnage. You know, it had been a life of in and out of institutions, jails, rehabs, and all the sorts. I had managed to get a degree I was living this kind of dual life where I got into a a private university in San Francisco and did a business degree. So, you know, by evening I was going to night classes and by day and by late night, I was doing all kinds of form of skullduggery, I guess. But I really was 25, 26 and looked around me and there was just absolute carnage. And that was, you know, I was heavily addicted to alcohol. The women in my life had been toxic and is is kind of twisted and, and not well as I. And uh, I had a really skewed, warped value system and the way that I perceived the world. I mean, this is now a theme in my life around one of my focuses and main focuses in life is to purify my perception. If I look back on how I perceived the life, it was perceived through the eyes of someone who was very sick. What changed it? How did you get out of this 
situation? What was that spark that said, hey, RJ, this is not a good place. Where are we going? And let's do something about it. I was 25 years old. I had a lot going on in the US in terms of troubles. And I knew something was going to happen. I was coming to a crossroads and I was telling my mom, like, I was like, yeah, I got a degree, but I've got a history here. I can't pull myself out of the physical environment. I cannot untangle myself from this identity that I've created. And I was going to leave to Australia. I was playing with the idea. And there was a catalyst that ultimately brought me here that I won't necessarily go into, but it was a catalyst. And I basically went and bought clothes from Target and a suitcase, stayed in a hotel, and I bought a one-way ticket to Sydney, Australia. And I knew as difficult as the decision was going to be, because I had never become a naturalized citizen in the U.S., all my family had become. I hadn't because of I was too busy just out there in the streets to go and bother to go. Plus, I had problems that would have prevented me from easily doing it by that stage. But I knew once I left to come here, my green card was getting expired. And there was a, a fair probability I wouldn't be coming back. So it wasn't just the decision of jumping on a plane and coming to an Australia. It was a decision to come to a country that I effectively didn't know since I had left at the age of three with the prospect of never being able to return to the United States to live. So it was a big decision, but I knew it was a decision I had to make. That was the first connectedness to reality I had had in a long time. And it was also the first lesson that facing the unknown is ultimately the way probably to the point now where I intentionally, to my detriment, look for it because I'm now biased towards the unknown path, but the path that I get a sense there's going to be transformation. And I had a sense that this is my opportunity. There was nowhere else, nothing else. Let's go into that point since you've, you've taken us there, this transformation. Like, What is this transformation in you? And even going back to some of that stuff you've shared, and thank you very much for going to that place, how has those experiences helped guide and bring out the best in you in this transformation and this self-mastery piece that we're going to go into? So I would say looking back, looking back in my life in the US, I was a very driven person. Before addiction took me out, I was obsessively playing soccer to the point where I'd cut class and train, right? Now, if had someone come along and said, hey, we need to redirect this kid into, you know, I was in the Olympic development program in California, which is probably one of the best states in, in terms of soccer in, in the country there. I could have got to a national team level. I had no interest in school. Now, had I had the right frameworks put around me, I could have done very well had that been harnessed because I had, I used to sleep with my soccer ball. Like I had an, I had an obsessive characteristic I didn't know that. I thought I was lazy and flighty. I just didn't have the discipline and strength of character, but I had a single-minded focus and that never left. The abilities that kept me alive on the streets have given me an ability in business to read a play that I thought other people could, but I'm now realized finally, I think at the age of 40 in business, I've got a unique ability to understand what makes people tick. And I'm very in sync with stakeholders 
And I believe that was developed early on as a kid in situations that were high risk. And I had to be in sync with the environment and the people within it. And I had, had to know how to move and groove. Those characteristics are characteristics I bring in today that are really the key drivers of my, what they call success, I suppose, to some degree. So those things have never changed. The fundamental shift has been the realignment of values. Like I've had a reorganization of values and that happened through the process of sobriety and getting onto a path that was, I guess, what we can call spiritual, if we want to put a word on it. And that was the beginning of the rearrangement of ideas that were no longer working. So as I got sober, my physical life started to change. I became successful quite quickly when I got sober in Australia, partly because I had a mentor who literally was there and he owned a business and he knew what was happening and he was taking me on this journey. I was still a crazy person, but physical success was happening because I could work. I was channeling it and I was exercising, but my values and my, my spirit and all that stuff still hadn't changed. The key there was, as I, I had now awareness, I wasn't, I wasn't a well person. I want you to dive into a little bit around those values. You keep saying how that value realignment and there was some support there through mentorship. Absolutely fantastic. But what is that value? What drives you? What does RJ stand for now? If you would have asked me how I saw myself when I was in the US, I wanted to cultivate an image of myself of being a hustler, shrewd, all about money, all about the angle. I loved to cultivate that view of myself. That was my narrative. I think the first thing was realizing that my narrative was starting to change and what I wanted my narrative to be was very different. One of the things we do in 12-step, which is interesting, which is I'm a member in the recovery community, is when you're getting sober in one of the steps, you list a bunch of attributes and values that you want your potential partner to have. And unbeknownst to the person that's doing it, once they show their sponsor who's taking, taking them through the steps, what their sponsor will say is, okay, you want to attract these values? Now you're going to attract it by exhibiting them and living them in your life. So what started to happen to me was I started to form this view of who I wanted to be. It wasn't who I was, but that was the shift. And then it was, okay, what do I need to do to get there? And that was a massive piece. And it was funny. I've, a lot of those values were shaped by the mentors that I had in this new life, just as it was in the previous life and looking at qualities and attributes they had. I would say one of the good things and what I was lucky, I think, for was that I came into, and I've said this to many people many different times, that business for me was never an opportunity to become successful. It was an opportunity that someone presented to me to enable me to change my life. So for me, as soon as I got into business, I had a sense that financial success isn't the end game. And I'm very lucky in that sense because I never had to live that, get to 40 and realize, oh my God, I've got everything in this crisis of conscious. I was always quite acutely aware that this is a vehicle and that's how I still view it. I still view what we do in the business world 
is a means of personal transformation. And I almost view it like sport because of that, because it's a, it's a complete game for me around business on a daily basis is helping me evolve. And I would say to digress a little bit, my number one priority with my children is to help them find their functional passion in life because your functional passion, i.e. what you do, can be used as a means of transformation. The Japanese do this. You can access mastery through form and through function. That's why I think it's one of the greatest responsibilities of a parent is to help their children find their thing because through finding their thing, they will then evolve because the passion dictates that. You cannot be the best at what you do without refining yourself. And so that's what business has done for me. I want you to just give, maybe just give one or two examples of those, you know, that realignment of values again, going back to that point. But, you know, what is it that you wanted to transition into and therefore that thought around the types of people that will be attracted to you? Because, you know, you've got a, you've got a lovely wife and a lovely family now and, and the world seems pretty good. So just give us a sense of, yeah, right. of what oh, one or two let, things let's were. Let's use that. Let's use that. Let's unpack that because that's a real good example. So until I met Tilly, who's my wife, lovely wife, the better half exponentially, until then I had, even in, when I was sober, water seeks its own level. So even though my physical environment was looking good, I was attracting women that were still very sick. I sought it out. Women that looked like the women that I was with when I was back in the USA doing my thing. And I couldn't get away from it. I could not get away from it. I met a group of men who identified what was going on with me. And they, they took me under their wing. And they were all married, all with strong values, but all had, had been through what I had been through in the transition to get sober. When I met Tilly, it was probably that first two years, especially when we lived together, was the most excruciating period of growth I had had ever. Because I am now have someone in my space. Romantic relationships have an ability to push your buttons in a way, they're great teachers in that sense, like children. But I wanted to abandon the relationship many times. And back to this perception thing, because my perception was, was skewed on relationships, I was seeing her as the problem. Everything in me was like, you need to get out of this. And the men in my life wouldn't let me abandon the relationship. We had made an agreement like I would not abandon the relationship. I was basically, I extricated myself of make, being able to make that decision. I couldn't make the decision. The agreement I had with, with these, these mentors was like, you can't make the decision to do it. And what was guiding that was my value to be a good man, to get into a healthy relationship. That value that objective was my true north. And because I was held to that value, I did not abandon the relationship. That's an example. And I'll tell you, uh, there are many people in the recovery community, in the addiction community that are sober many, many years, and they're very broken in relationships because addiction, ultimately, when you take the drugs and alcohol away, they're always is a dysfunction in the person's relationship to other people. And their individual's willingness to face that will dictate whether 
they can get married and move on or they will spin for the rest of their lives in these relationships that are not well. I've seen it. And you know what? That's what actually kept me in that relationship because I was looking around me at all my peers that were young. They were all in and out of relationships. They were all physically doing well, but they couldn't seem to get that part of their life together. And I went and sought people in the recovery community that I saw these people had what I wanted. How did you do it? They told me. And I didn't always like the answer, but now with two kids and sometimes in relationships, what we don't realize is that we as individuals are looking for other people to help with our inherent self-dissatisfaction. And when they can't, we become resentful. And that's what was happening with me. I was looking for her to help me feel better about myself. And because she couldn't, because no one can, she became the problem. <laughs> and again, it comes down to perception. Our interview will continue after this. An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with a personal video, voice message, or funny GIF. You can send right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time. Set and forget. I like that. I have found it perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, or any celebration where I can't be there in person. It's quick, easy to send, and you can spend instantly in-store or online when you receive a card. Check it out at jangler.com.au. Let's continue this. Obviously, we continue this focus on yourself, and I want to use this word self-mastery because we mentioned it in the introduction. All of these things you talked about, you know, they're all around self and what you're doing and and fantastic. First of all, just what does self-mastery actually mean for you and what does it look like? So for me, self-mastery is the struggle, the journey to access awareness I require to understand how I really tick, which then leads to effective management of the good and the bad and the ugly of my character. It has nothing to do with it's going to result in making $2 million next week. I don't care about that. It's about self-analysis, which leads to recognition of my operating system. Once I have that, I can work with it. That's what it means. For me and that's the only game in town for me i gotta be honest with you that is what i folk it was revealed to me in my mba we had a leadership weekend it was like who do you want to be and it was like, everything was about leadership it was a great weekend it was unbelievable and we did a paper and i did this paper about the leader i wanted to be and i came up with this thing around mind body spirit And everything that I wanted to do was focused around evolution and in those areas. The feedback from my professor was that, and I'm not saying this from an ego perspective, he said, you were the only one that focused on behavior. Like most of what other people said was CEO, CFO, blah, blah, blah. There was none of that. So for me, when I say the only game is self-mastery, I have a belief that by focusing on that, it will just lead to success. It's got to happen. I have to have drive and passions and stuff, obviously. I don't need to really worry about, oh, I got to be a CFO in two years and see, like, those moves mean nothing. You and I have had various conversations around these sort of topics. 
in we both use that word hypocrisy from time to time in leaders. Now's a good time to maybe expand on that with your own version of what's this hypocrisy in leadership in relation to self-mastery that we see probably quite often today. So let me preface this with, I always felt embarrassed or a sense of imposter syndrome when someone say, like, I never wanted it to say, I believed I'm a leader and I'd almost rebel and say, I'm not because I recognize I enjoy my individualism and I tend to revel in my own success more than a group success. I I tend to be geared that way, right? So I thought I'm not a leader because of that. And then it was pointed out by a mentor, someone that has been very good for me. She said, uh, you are a leader. You're a leader because you're leading through your own example. People are watching what you do. And then it made me realize that, okay, there's a level of accountability there, but there's different types of leaders. And I suppose speaking on this hypocrisy piece, I don't believe a leader can impact their environment effectively unless they have done thorough and are continuing to do thorough self-analysis. And I believe a leader needs to hold their own evolution as a matter of priority before they feel they can go and bestow their wisdom on everyone else. And I'm not saying you can't do it concurrently, but a leader to me has to be the first person to fall on their sword. Okay. And Jim Collins talks about it a lot, right? In terms of the show horse versus the workhorse and what types of CEOs and leaders are typically successful. I even look at my current CEO at Cora. One of the things I love about Steve is, is he reflects. He reflects a lot. We have conversations about that reflection. And I feel that we tend to be in an era now where there is a lot of team orientated stuff. We've talked about it, but The question really is those individuals in those team building exercises that are all leaders that are working on creating cohesive teams, what work are they doing on themselves? How sustainable all these initiatives that are being put into play when they've got no view and perspective on their own shortcomings and their own blind sides, and they're not working the self-analysis piece themselves. So that's To me, what I call that hypocrisy, it's not vicious. It's not something that's intentional, but everyone wants to lead other people. But how many people want to lead themselves? That should actually be the freaking qualification for any leadership position. Yeah, everyone wants to make $100,000 more, but okay, what, what have you done? What are you doing with yourself? Like what kind of work are you doing on yourself? Looking at yourself on this journey that you're on, and we're all on a a journey of self-discovery, I hope. Has there ever been a time in your own life where you've felt that maybe you have been more that hypocritical leader? And when was that? What did it look like? So when I first was working in my previous firm under my mentor who helped me kind of change, in many ways, it was a privately owned company. I was given a wide berth. I I had gotten sober there. So everyone had witnessed that. And I was getting really good results. I had a real high level of energy, but there was a double-edged sword with the level of energy I was having at that time. It was driven by a lot of fear and a lot of imposter syndrome. And I need to kind of get results because business is my means of transformation. If I'm not getting results, I'm not transforming. I think that's what was really going on for me. And because of that, I could be a nightmare. 
I developed at times the the means justifies the ends, which happens in sales, especially because that's the that's where I'm in. That's the world I live in. So that propels it as well. Like, okay, if I'm a if you're gonna measure everything I do, sales within an organization is generally the most measurable function. You're either doing it or not. And if you're gonna you're gonna put these targets on me and I achieve them, I'm gonna do and be and I act how the hell I want to. So I had a lot of that general sales stuff you see going on, but coupled from the where I had come from, probably the level of fear and insecurity. And then I'm going through this whole self-help stage. So I'm like Mr. Inspirational sometimes, but I'm cutting people down 20 minutes later. Does that make sense? Like I was crazy. I'm sending like YouTube videos of Eric Thomas at 6 a.m. like to all staff. And then by like noon, I'm like screaming at somebody, you know, because there's this whole piece when person's going through their own evolution, it's in their head and it takes time to get to their heart. There's a knowledge accumulation stage. A lot of people live there forever. That's where the pontification is like, you know, like, oh my God, look at all this material I found. And you're in that stage of your development where you want to, you want everyone to get into your inspirational material. And uh, yeah, Napoleon Hill was changing my life. And I want you to read Napoleon Hill. Then by one o'clock, I'm screaming and kicking you. You know, that's the hypocrisy that I would have exhibited totally because there was who I wanted to be and who I was were two different things. And that's generally the case with most of us. The game is identifying it and bridging the gap. Let's go into that bridging of the gap as you refer to. This self-mastery, you founded this business, Ultra Habits. Great little hashtag, Ultra Habits. Tell us about that. So this action, what are you doing? What action are you taking? What action do you believe others should be taking on this journey of mastery and, and building up these Ultra Habits? What happened for me was... When I finished my MBA, I started running and then I had, before I started my MBA, and I'm glad I didn't realize it was a thing. I used to go hiking a lot when I, before I did my MBA and then I'd start running while I was hiking and I I loved it, but I didn't know it was actually a thing. And thank God, because I probably would have quit work. What I tend to go to what's hard, right? That's hard, but I didn't. And I finished my MBA, started running again and got it and realized there's this whole community of crazy people that like run ri- ridiculous masochistic distances. And I thought, well, this sounds like my new MBA, <laughs> right? Anyway, what I realized when I was out there, and this is where people talk about David Goggins and people like Rich Roll, and, and, and there's a lot of learnings and evolution, uh, personal evolution, and, and just kind of synergies in ultra running or ultra endurance that exists in the world of high performance in any space. So when I had my second child, I could no longer race and I didn't want to because of the level of required training, very selfish endeavor for me. But what I did realize is that the learning from my whole ultra habits, the ultra running, which I still run in trails, but the whole learning and outcome and gift I received in this that journey was this concept of, ultra and it was actually already embodied in who and what i was before i was ultra running i was ultra studying i was ultra living i was all about focusing on exponential kind of growth and activity right so what you know the premise of ultra habits is looking at the minutia in our lives everyone wants to look at the sexy big picture stuff. But ultimately, the secret sauce is in the minutia in our lives. And when you're ultra running, it's in the minutia. Okay, you're out there by yourself on a Sunday training, running six hours and 
the Great Northern Walk or bloody wherever. Everything is in the minutia, what you're drinking, what are you eating? Do I run this? Do I walk up this? Because I've got to get back. No one's out here. There's a lot in it. And adopting those principles into life, okay, well, what are the the small things that I engage? And for me now in my life, it's very much tweaking the small things. The big levers are no longer there. It's really the small things. What am I engaging on a day-to-day basis that enable me to, once I compound that activity day in, day out, it unlocks value, right? So no habit in itself is ultra. It's very much mundane. But when compounded, it has an ultra effect. That's what it is. And the podcast that we're going to release in January, our first guest is Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan Races. I've got a massive man crush on him in terms of like just everything about him. Like I ask him about his kids, his philosophy. Like he's he's the, the podcast that we do release is all going to be focused on the minutia. I want to understand the mechanisms, and we're going to be talking to CEOs, athletes, academics, true experts, not social media experts, but experts around well, what's the minutia? What's the stuff they do? Because I'm interested in that. So what is RJ's minutia? Everyone talks about morning routines and savers is a pretty common acronym around the morning ritual, morning routine. Really great things. I have my own morning routine, but what's, what's RJ Singh's minutia? How do you start each day? I say that I think it's very important when you have structure to be skillful in the sense of knowing because when you have structure or you become structured, and I've been through this piece as well, there becomes a real risk of being inflexible and rigid, which actually does the opposite of what you're trying to achieve, right? So high performance to me, the definition has changed, hence why I've stopped running so much, because high performance is the effective integration of all areas of my life. Whereas when I'm running at that level, I become lopsided. And if I was a professional runner, it'd be different, but I'm not. I had, someone had to help me see that. So it's the effective integration of different activities and different priorities in my day, okay, that and unlock the best I can be, right? So the night before the next day, kids drive efficiency, as you know, especially little ones. So I've got a three and a half and a six-month-old. I pre-plan and pre-set everything. So my limited, my movements as soon as I wake up are limited because I don't want to wake anyone up, right? But I also don't want to be fumbling around wasting time in the morning. So I get up very early. It varies depending on what time I go to sleep because sleep on my hierarchy of needs is, is the priority over waking up early. So generally I'll wake up anywhere it can range between four to five Everything is literally placed where it needs to be so I can walk out of the house. I grab my keys or my shoes. The bags have been loaded in my my car the night before. It, there's limited movement through the house. I get out and I get to where I'm going, which is generally the gym or the trails. My journals are sitting on my passenger seat with a pen in it. And I usually have one reading. So right now I'm reading Jocko Wilnick, he's an ex-seal or something. He's got a book on discipline, right? I enjoy some of his stuff, so I'm reading that. But I've got a, a journal that I write in, which is a Stoic journal. Actually, I, I, I enjoy some of the Stoic stuff where it asks you questions and you reflect. And 
I do my journaling. At the end of the journal, I have a habit that I'm focusing on every day until I develop mastery, right? So right now I've got two of them. One, and the reason I still have, I have two is because I haven't gained mastery over one of them. So I keep it is, is batch checking my emails, nine, 12 and five. And I keep cheating and I will not take it off the list until I stick to that. And the other is around rumination. And so I do that journaling. And for me, it's, it's really, really important that I do that. The next thing is focusing on the high impact stuff that is required for me to be successful in that day. Okay. So there's a lot of external noise. There's a lot of noise in our lives. There's a lot of people, places, and things pulling us in different directions. So it's understanding Pareto's law, right? Like what, what do I need to be focusing on in terms of what's that, that small percentage of stuff that's going to deliver most of what I need to, to, to have done that day. So I'm reflecting on that, right? So I go off, I kind of do my energy, right? Manage my energy through exercise and, and running or be the gym. Some of the other things I do in no particular order is every, every morning I make my bed. There was a speech by an admiral in the United States at, I think, Texas A&M. He did a whole speech around making your bed. And for me, super important. There are many times I can't because of I leave so early, I get home, but on the weekends I always do. And as soon as I get home and if my wife hasn't done it, I make it, even if it's midday or later on in the day. It, it just, I need to kind of feel like my environment is clean and organized. In fact, to my wife's annoyance, and some can call it a bit of compulsiveness, when I get home from work, there are certain things I do in terms of tidying the environment because it makes me feel settled. So what else? There's eating right, eating healthy, what I put into my body. Food isn't necessarily something that I'm as conscious as probably other areas of my life, but I eat well. We already talked about exercises. Finances I track throughout the day. So really having a high level of awareness around not frugality, but how I spend money, like why I'm spending money. I think that's very important in the main to really understand why I spend the money I do. For me, money, I place peak experiences at the apex of where I spend money. So anything that results in a peak experience, which is transformative, that's why I'm willing to pay a lot of money for my kid's education. Because for me, that's a peak experience. I'll, I'll pay the premium for anything that I feel will change their view of the world and their relationship to the world. And, 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 and so I have a hierarchy on where money is like a car. And I, I, to me is no value. Like I won't, I won't buy a nice car like for me. There's no point. And then I think the other is I, a keen, I suppose, whether it's a habit or a behavior is I err to impulsiveness versus analytical procrastination. And then I pivot is required. And I think far too many people tend to think their way into things. I think one thing we need to realize is that action changes our mindsets and our behaviors and attitudes. I'm very existentially focused. I believe in the behavior altering the state. The output alters the state. I can't think my way into change to act myself into it. So there's some a few things around kind of how I operate and some of the thought processes that I engage throughout the day. In this journey of self-mastery and all of those things you've just mentioned there, you know, the ultra habits, is there any one that you would point out to say has been maybe the most impactful on your journey so far? Self-analysis. 
Socrates said, unexamined life is not worth living. I wholeheartedly agree. It all starts with self-analysis. Deciding to turn the light inward. We're all looking externally. Why he, she. Here's the go. I have to be the change I want to see in the world. I have to focus on when you're working with an individual, I feel. You have to get them to see that trying to change the external environment is okay and noble in some degree, but not when you're not looking and you're not implementing that change within yourself. Because ultimately, the only way the world is going to change is not through other people telling each other to change. It's through everyone doing their own work on themselves. And so self-analysis is the key. Now, most people will never do it because there's no impetus. That's why my history has been a blessing. Pain's a good motivator. Trauma's a good no- motivator. People don't change when they don't have to. So this whole thing around self-deception we talk about in the workplace, it happens when I'm enclosed in my own subjectivity, in my own world. And the only anecdote to that is starting to gain insight into how your own world is skewed based on the causes and conditions of your upbringing and whatever. And that only happens through the decision to start to look at yourself. How would you suggest to me and others to start that journey? What, what habit do you think we need to get into to help with our own self-analysis? First of all, for anyone to change, it was told to me that the individual has to see what they're going to lose or what they can gain. Human beings are moved by emotion and you have to find a reason to get interested in change. First of all, I met with a dude a few days ago who's been diagnosed with bipolar and he's got all these ideas and he's in that knowledge accumulation stage we talked about where he's like right off his head, but he's like, oh my God, this is great. That's great. This is great. Whatever. And I'm just trying to make sure he doesn't get burned out. But he's now on this journey of self-evaluation. The impetus for that was being diagnosed. So I can't, unfortunately, and here's the thing, I can't, as we call it in the 12-step community, they call it the gift of desperation. You can't bestow that to anyone. I can't bestow that to anyone. That's why I think sometimes it's easier to work with people that are broken versus people that just want to change a little bit. Because... The consequence of it not happening is obvious to the person that's broken. Whereas for the person that thinks they're already good, well, why do I have to be great or tweak? So I can't give people that. But if you do already have that gift of wanting to look at yourself, start to investigate mind, body, spirit, learn books, get interested, start to read, start to get on, use social media for its benefits, man. Use YouTube for its benefits. There's a wealth of information. Go on your journey. Let curiosity guide you. Curiosity needs to become first and foremost a guiding principle in your life. And it will unfold from there. But the impetus has to first be there and then get curious and start to learn. Develop a learning mindset. That to me is probably the biggest thing. And then from there, you find your tribe. I'm a big believer in in leveraging tribes, gyms that are community-based, even LinkedIn local, what you do is a tribe, find people, find environments where the norms that are held are norms and values that you strive for. The community will start to shape you too. And once you get involved in those communities, you'll be off and running. 
that it's as simple as that, but it's from curiosity to community. And then it just becomes a learning process and iterative from there. Mate, when we talk about impact and going back on what you said earlier about, you know, you never saw yourself as a leader and, you know, you are, you see that now, but by your own actions and your own self-mastery, what impact are you hoping to leave with people that interact with you? If you were to ask me what life looked like for me when I believe I'm in a place of being self-actualized, it means that when I'm engaged with people having these kind of conversations, they leave with the knowledge that change is truly accessible and it's there and it isn't through these wonderful ideas and it's not for those people over there. It's accessible to me right here and now through actions, 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 actions. And by redesigning how I am in the world via my habits and actions, that will start to drive different outcomes. That's the go. Absolutely, mate. And there is absolutely no doubt in the world, in my experience, you are a man of action. (laughs) (laughs) Action, Jackson. Absolutely. Mate, probably the most simple question to finish off. How can people get hold of RJ Singh? Yeah, yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, RJ Singh on LinkedIn. I have a couple emails. I've got rj.singh at coragroup.com. That's C-O-R-A group.com. I'm also at rj.singh at ultrahabits.co. That's ultrahabits, one word, .co. You can email me. There are social media platforms on Instagram. Ultrahabits is on Instagram. It's also on Facebook, but I'd suggest the emails for anything, anything. I'm always up for a good deep dive, especially if there's actionable items at the end of it that people are going to do. <laughs> that you are, mate. How about also you just share, I know there's a, a great little uh, one or two pager on your website around Ultra Habits, a, a little checklist. How can people get hold of that? Yeah, yeah. Email me as well at rj.sing at ultrahabits.co and I'll be able to send that out. It's also accessible via LinkedIn on my RJ Singh page. So yeah, those two ways are probably the best way. The The actual website, the proper website right now is being built by our mutual friend. He's also a runner. That's why you got the gig. So um, there'll be more there soon. Fantastic. My aren't relationships everything, right? They are, man. <laughs> they are. They definitely are. Mate, once again, fantastic to chat with you. I've known you for a bit of time absolutely action 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 that is you 100 it's fantastic to learn even more about you today and where you're at and this journey of mastery and discovery and i'm so glad that you've landed on in a place like the central coast because you know get to have coffee with you every now and again have a chat and we have some really great conversations so mate thank you for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for being a guest on the culture things podcast thanks brendan thanks for having me man appreciate it pleasure buddy thanks bro RJ is well on his way to building his tribe. His Ultra Habits philosophy is powerful and simple to do, but also simple not to do. It is about you making a decision to continuously improve you. If you focus on improving you, the rest will fall into place. If you don't already have RJ Singh in your network, you're missing out. Connect with him on LinkedIn now. 
After all, who wouldn't want to be connected to the Central Coast version of David Goggins? Or as his gym buddies call him, the poor man's David Goggins. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with RJ. My first key takeaway. Leaders focus on the art of self-mastery. If you aren't working on improving yourself, what gives you the right to guide others to improve? As RJ said, everybody wants to lead other people, but how many people want to lead themselves? If you focus on the art of self-mastery and what this means to you, you will have a solid foundation for leading others. My second key takeaway, leaders have a high level of situational awareness. This is simply knowing what is going on around you. You could also call it street smarts. Having the ability to sum up a situation, be aware of how your own actions impact in that situation, and also being attuned to other people's behavior in the given situation is a powerful skill to have. Leaders who are tuned in to the dynamics of their team will normally have a high level of situational awareness. My third key takeaway, leaders know the small things done regularly make a big difference. Often the small daily actions don't seem like they are having any impact in the short term, but doing these small things over and over and over again will eventually compound. Leaders get clear on the small things, do them and trust the process that they will make a big difference. So in summary, my three key takeaways were leaders focus on the art of self-mastery. Leaders have a high level of situational awareness. And leaders know the small things done regularly make a big difference. To win this week's $30 Jangler gift card of your choice, answer this question. What is the name of RJ's business he has just founded? Send your answer to brendan at brendanrogers.com.au. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.